The Guardian. Nova is America's most watched science series. You'll find it every night at 7.50 on PBS. Sky Channel 166, Virgin Media 243. PBS, where television matters. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Tom Clark. A million young people are now out of work in Britain as the human cost of the financial crisis becomes ever more stark. And it's a similar story across Europe as people under 24 bear the brunt of the economic turmoil. Joining me in the studio, we have our economics correspondent, Katie Allen, our industrial editor, Dan Milmo, and on the line from Madrid, we've got Giles Tremlett. A warm welcome to you all. Now, Katie, you've been digging into this unemployment data. How bad's the news? On a national picture, it's pretty bad. It's, in fact, the worst um, unemployment rate for 15 years. So 8.3%, the unemployment rate's come in higher than we expected. That means 2.6 million people are out of work. Again, the highest for many years, for 17 years. But if you break those figures down, it does appear, as you say, that young people may be bearing the brunt of the economic slowdown. And in 16 to 24-year-olds, the rate is 22%. So that's more than double the national rate. And that's more than 1 million 16 to 24-year-olds out of work. There's a couple of caveats that I'm sure the government will be drawing on today. 286,000 of those million are full-time students looking for part-time work, but they're not finding it. It is the highest on record, although the Office for National Statistics, who put out this data, say there's some evidence it may have been higher in the 80s. Before they had the numbers. Yeah, but I I doubt very much for someone between the age of 16 to 24, that's much consolation. (laughs) I know, and it was very unfortunate for Chris Grayling, the Employment Minister earlier caught, saying, oh, this is a distraction, the million mark. I mean, I think he had these caveats, but it doesn't sound great if you're one of those young unemployed people, does it? I just don't think Chris Grayling has come off well at all this morning. I mean, his, his statement was pretty much out there saying... This is a cause. This is caused by the eurozone, and I think to say that when you know, this is one of the indicators that so many economists, so many charities, so many groups around Britain and the general public will be poring over, and most of them know it's a lagging indicator to blame it on a crisis in the eurozone that's you know has been going on a while but is really coming to a head now just doesn't make economic sense, and he's already been attacked for that, and I think that will continue throughout the rest of today. Right. Um, so 22% youth unemployment, Giles. Um, sounds pretty scary from here, but what about from your perspective? Well, I have to say that from, uh, from Spain, that looks pretty good. Um, we're up to uh, 46%. That figure is for people who aren't, who aren't studying. But obviously, you know, it's um, incomparable, really. There's nowhere else in Europe that's quite as bad as that. And is it genuine? It's not a sort of statistical issue or something about how the benefits work? Are they, uh, really are talking about almost half of these young people who were not at college being out looking for work? Well, there, there, there's always an element of what we might call interpretation to, um, to Spanish unemployment figures, which are generally, even at good times, are actually higher than, uh, than in other places. At the moment, perhaps one of the problems is that the, um, the black economy, the underground economy, is growing, so we might find that um, quite a lot of people are, are working uh, part-time there. But actually, uh, for younger people who haven't had a job before, it's just, 
it's easier for them to be on the figures because they're not going to be pulling unemployment uh, benefit um, that would have been built up you know, from earlier contributions. I read um, Chris Giles, who's the economics editor of the FT recently, in a comment piece saying Spain, in a way, is really <laughs> doing rather well compared to Britain because it's exporting a lot. Um, whereas, you know, we, we talk about rebalancing our economy, but we, we seem to be failing to do so. I wonder, do you think that the employment situation in Spain then is sort of worse than the economy or do you think the economy is in a mess overall? The, the economy is definitely in a mess. Funny enough, one of the things it's exporting is labour. Um, lots of young Spaniards are now looking abroad. In fact, I was looking at some figures the other day which uh, uh, about the number of young Spaniards who've actually gone to Britain to look for work, which might not be a wise, um, wise thing to do looking at today's figures. But actually, huge numbers are now beginning to leave. They're going to Germany. They're going to uh, France. Uh, and there's even a lot of talk now about heading for places like Brazil and Latin America where there are jobs, especially for you know people with, uh, with qualifications. But it's sort of going back to uh, an earlier period in the 60s, 50s and 60s when Spaniards emigrated. Good luck to any of them who make it over here. But Dan, um, you follow manufacturing particularly closely do you get the sense that the shakeout now is mostly about factories closing or do you think it's more about services i think it in general we've seen manufacturing hasn't been um a sort of focus of um political effort in the early years of the labor government it certainly did towards the end i attended a, a manufacturing industry event uh, only this week where um, the audience uh, chimed as one in saying that um, it was a bit curious, but from about 2008, 2009, Labour suddenly got religion about manufacturing and then the Conservative and Lib Dem government has continued it. So it's not so much whether factories are bearing the brunt of the closures. We've certainly seen some big announcements, BAE Systems, for instance, shedding 3,000 jobs. It's, it's just the fact that they've, they've not felt the love from policymakers over the past decade and only now are at a time when um, stimulating the economy in any direction is pretty tricky. Was it Jaguar where there's going to be some new jobs? Yes, there have been some pretty good announcements from Jaguar over the past few months, a total of 1,750 jobs. But Is that um, a complete one-off or are there a few glimmers of hope in, out there? Well, that certainly is a glimmer of hope. Rolls-Royce, which is a company I tend to spend a fair bit of time with just because of its sheer scale in the, um, in the manufacturing firmament, is, is ticking along well. But you, I would say that JLR is a, a bit of a one-off. I mean, this is uh, historical data, really. Now, but um, in the year uh, in in June two thousand and eleven, compared with the year uh, the same period the year before, manufacturing employment is down zero point nine percent. It's not a bubbly, vibrant uh, job market at the moment, uh, as far as manufacturing is concerned. And this, despite the big decline in the value of sterling, which should be making it easy for us to sell goods overseas yeah i mean that i suppose from that from that simple arithmetic yes it should um in the time i've been doing the job uh it seems to me that a decline in sterling uh, in the value of sterling is not going to help us export plastic spoons to china india and america because there just will be other economies around the world that will do it cheaper no matter right. where sterling is hanging what we have to do is and you know this is something that manufacturers industrialists all agree with is conceptualize uh, design and then build ideally build uh, the high value stuff the difficult stuff that isn't easy like the, the snazzy new mclaren sports cars the wings for the airbus a380s uh, and we do do that here but we don't do it enough 
Katie, uh, it's a matter of weeks to the pre-budget report. After these figures, George Osborne's going to have to come up with something, isn't he? Yeah, so we've got the autumn statement on the um, 29th Sorry, of November. Sorry, the autumn statement. Yeah. Um, as it's known under, under Osborne. And um, from what we're hearing, the focus will again be on the growth review. We had the first phase of that um, in March this year at the budget. And um, I think we only need to look at some of the economic data to say a growth review or a growth plan has not done perhaps as well as anyone in the Treasury might have wished. And um, I think there'll be a focus this time on infrastructure, which is something that could bring jobs. You know, if we have big building projects um, that also bring in things supplied by the by the manufacturing sector, there'll have to be something. But I don't know what we can expect that's bold while the government, you know, m- remains very committed to its deficit cutting plan. And, you know, again and again, it is said, you know, we're not leaving plan A for a plan B like mm. Labour is proposing. They're saying we're doing too much damage. You've cut too fast, too quickly. It's time for a plan B. The focus needs to be growth and jobs. Whereas the coalition is saying the focus needs to be cutting the deficit. And yes, we have sympathy for people who are losing their jobs. But, you know, this is the rebalancing of the economy. So it seems like an awful lot really is going to hinge on whether he can devise some wheeze, you know, uh, such as this talk about getting pension funds to invest in infrastructure or credit easing that he's talked about, whether one of those will provide him a way with getting a load of infrastructure built um, on the cheap, as it were. Yes, I mean, all these things, though, they, they're going to take time to come through and mm. we, we need so much more detail. I mean, credit easing has been referred to in the past. I think we heard about it, was it a couple of months ago now, wasn't it, at the beginning of October? And we speak to small companies and they're saying, I can't see any difference. I'm still struggling to get finance. You look at the statistics, the access to finance for businesses is going down. They're saying, you know, if we come back to the jobs data, I can't hire more people if I don't know, if I can't invest. If I'm not growing my business, why on earth in these circumstances would I hire more people? If I can't export because the Eurozone's in the state it's in, why would I hire more people? So, so we need a lot more on things like credit easing. I think you know, most businesses would agree that, that that is a really big area for them, is access to that finance. Um, just one more thing on the figures themselves. There's a split, isn't there, between public employees and private? Does that give us any... Is there anything there that enables us to see whether the cuts are directly responsible for... Some of... Um, as um, Dan was mentioning with the manufacturing jobs, some of the um, data on sectors is quite historical that we get from the ONS. But, you know, we are seeing big job cuts in the public, in sector, public sector in the public sector now. And, you know, that particularly impacts on women because they, te- they hold, I think, about 65% of public sector jobs. They tend to hold those part-time jobs that are going. Um, so that, that has been an impact. And I think if you look at the figures... At the moment, what we're seeing, and and if you look at business surveys and hiring intentions, which is perhaps more useful because you're looking forward to where the labour market's going, there just doesn't seem to be a sign that the private sector is taking up the slack of the public sector, which is perhaps what the government might have hoped. When they talk about rebalancing the economy away from dependence on domestic demand towards exports, which we've mentioned, towards the private sector from the public sector... It's just it's not quite happening at the pace it perhaps needs to. And in the interim, there's a lot of pain for a lot of people. 2.6 million, they're out of work. You know, and there are predictions this morning that if we do go into a double dip and a lot of people are are not ruling that out, then unemployment could climb further and could be, I think, about 3 million by the end of 2014. So it could get a lot, lot worse before it gets better. You've got an election, Giles, over in Spain um, on Sunday, haven't you? Is Is it all about the economy and is it all about cuts? It's all about uh, it's all about jobs, really. Uh, I mean, we have uh, five million unemployed in Spain, 
and uh, and those are figures that are actually uh, still rising. So, you know, whoever uh, can get uh, people working again um, will be a very popular person. At the moment, that job's going to go to Mariano Rajoy, who's from the um, Conservative People's Party, and is very much in tune with uh, Merkel and, uh, and Brussels and the European Central Bank, but has a really a, a, a terrible job to do. The double dip in Spain looks as though it really is now just just around the corner, um, growth is completely flat. It was in the third quarter, and um, the feeling is that we've probably uh, started to um, to shrink the economy uh, this quarter and next quarter. And with the right being widely tipped to win this election, are you expecting any big change on the economic front? Well, yes, I think we will get some quite serious reform. The trouble is Rajoy has sort of learned by looking at uh, David Cameron, and he decided that the, that the um, Conservative Party was far too upfront with its with its plans, and that might explain why it didn't do as well as it might have done uh, at the last election. And so, although he's talking in very broad terms about reforms, he's not actually going into much detail, which might explain why the markets are still uh, a bit nervous about Spain. But in the in the broader sense, yes, we'll get um, reforms, especially to um, the labour market, where here. We have this sort of strange duality where you're either in some sort of Teflon-coated contract which gives you uh, guaranteed pay rises and makes you very difficult and very expensive to to sack, or you're in the the other part of the labor force, which is basically either A, not working, or B, is surviving off very uh, short-term contracts and has very little uh, sense of uh, stability. Thank you very much indeed for all of that. You'll be able to follow Giles Tremlett's reporting on Spain uh, on Sunday uh, on the Guardian website. And there's also more on the British unemployment figures up on our website, guardian.co.uk forward slash business. Now, Ireland is yet another country where youth unemployment is a serious problem. It's just one of the after-effects of the bursting of a great property bubble there, which was built on unsustainable credit. The crash took out the country's major banks and also wiped out the political party, Fianna Fáil, which had ruled the island for most of the last 50 years. Now, however, it's got a new government and people are starting to discern glimmers of hope in the Irish situation. Tourism's picking up. Housing rents are also on the rise for the first time in years. But such progress as there's been has not been painless. Far from it. I asked Pete Lunn, who's an economist at the Economic and Social Research Institute in Dublin, just how severe the austerity measures had been. Pretty severe, although in all honesty, quite a lot of that pain was already in train before the bailout. I mean, it was clear that a huge amount of fiscal adjustment was going to have to happen. The result of this is we've had health budgets slashed, education budgets slashed only in the last week or so. The capital budget was hugely pared back, including plans for a Dublin metro and so on. So there's been a very large cuts in public spending that are going to amount to a very serious adjustment over a five-year period. And have you had um, many tax rises or salary cuts as well in terms of people's wallets? 
Uh, yes, everybody's wallet's been hit, even pensioners. So yes, I mean, there have been tax rises, there have been some changes to social welfare, although those are more limited. Uh, public servants have had pay cuts too, quite substantial for most public servants of the order, sort of 5 to 8% in each case. So yes, there have been pretty severe adjustments in terms of uh, salaries, less so in the private sector, whereas is often the case in recessions, the real pressure has been felt through unemployment. So a lot of pay freezes and we've got unemployment running at between 14 and 15%. A year ago, though, the press reporting, at least over here about Ireland, was a good deal gloomier. And now some people are sort of tentatively holding it up as an example of uh, a country where savagery's worked. And it looks like it's now cheaper for the Irish government to borrow money. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, in secondary markets, our, our rate of borrowing has fallen, although, of course, we're getting all our money at the moment from uh, Europe and from the IMF. But yes, I mean, broadly speaking, the Irish government has simply stuck to the austerity plan. And I think it's been able to do that because the economy has kind of bumped along the bottom, but not got significantly worse. Now, it's important to stress there's two speeds to that. I mean, we're actually exporting extremely well. The multinationals here are doing really quite well. They're supporting the economy at the moment and are continuing to grow in terms of output. The domestic economy is utterly in the doldrums, which is why our unemployment uh, rate is still up at between 14 and 15 percent. So, you know, there's a bit of a two-speed economy, but that's doing enough for government revenues that the government is managing to stick to the austerity targets. And as of now, the public are swallowing those, although there's a budget due next month and we'll see how that goes down. So you think that this business of the exports is a pretty important difference with the likes of Greece and Portugal and Italy? Well, Ireland has a, a sort of two-tier economy, if you like, and a lot of Irish economic activity is through multinationals, many of whom are headquartered in Ireland, including Google Europe, for example. Those companies are doing very well. The pharmaceutical sector here is large. They're doing well as well. So, yes, I mean, there is a difference there. They're pretty much propping up the Irish economy at the moment, while the domestic economy is desperately struggling to adjust from a situation where far too many people were employed in construction and related industries and are now having to find other work and start up other businesses. At least on the news here we've seen far fewer protests uh, as compared with Greece and some of the other stricken economies have you got any thoughts as to whether the Irish are just more placid with this sort of thing it's a big debate here over what the reasons are why people haven't hit the streets in the way they have in some other countries. Now, there have been protests. I mean, when they cut the medical cards from over 70s, a lot of old people went crazy at them and shouted them down at public meetings and they reversed it. Um, but there have been protests that are sort of specific to particular cuts. So where hospitals have been closed, there have been big local protests. The loss of special needs assistance from schools has caused lots of local protests. Students have protested about finances and so on. Uh, but they've all been localised or specific to groups. There haven't been any really large demonstrations. I think the biggest reason for that is actually that, unlike many European countries, there is no serious left-wing movement with historical roots in Ireland. There, there was never any kind of class structure to its politics. The two main political parties differed primarily over the national question, not over economic questions of distribution. And because there isn't that sort of political infrastructure of organised left-wing opposition to austerity measures, it's not spilled over into organised protest that covers many groups the protest has tended to be much more isolated that's fascinating because um although as you say ireland's politics has been structured around the question of you know the island's integrity and sovereignty um and fianna foil the governing party that was obliterated back in the um early spring um was known as the republican party but you're saying that still the politics is organised around uh, Republican lines. And what I, what I find baffling about this is that sovereignty is um, 
is maybe questionable at the moment, isn't it, for Ireland? <laughs> you wouldn't be the first British person to find Irish politics baffling. <laughs> I've been here for 10 years and I still find it baffling. Um, in all honesty, that's what actually is really interesting about this. I mean, one of the reasons I believe the argument about you know, the class structure of politics being the primary difference is that actually when protests most threatened to come out onto the streets here in an organised fashion was at the time of the bailout over the sovereignty question, because the fault lines of Irish politics are about the national question. They're about national autonomy. And when it started, when the economic crisis started to threaten that, that was actually when the protests got as loud as they got throughout this entire period of three or four years of financial major financial trouble now. I think there are some other things kicking around here, though, as well. I think a large proportion of the population is resigned to what's happened and feels like they were caught up in the bubble. So there's an awful lot of people who feel guilty and as if they were themselves partly to blame. I think that's important. I think size is important, too. You've got to remember, Ireland's a small country. It's quite possible if there's a mass protest that somebody who's throwing something at a guard is throwing something at a guard who lives in their street. And that makes quite a difference, too. And without meaning to in anyway facetious anybody who studies civil unrest will tell you that it's much more likely in countries that have more hot weather and in during periods of hot weather in other countries <laughs> we don't have an awful lot of that no i guess that's true so that's one thing in ireland's favor but um but has the is the sense now that the all-important sovereignty question you allude to there is solved or is the sense still that policy is being dictated um i don't know the imf in washington and, and by the eu there's certainly still major concerns that we're being directed from outside. Now, it's important to state we've got three more austerity budgets to come on current projections. So there's three more rounds of pretty severe cuts starting next month. Who knows how they're going to go down? Because, of course, if you're cutting back public spending, you're likely to go for the lowest hanging fruit first. So there's more to come. And whether the population has really steeled itself for that and is expecting three more years of it or somewhere feels the worst is over, that's going to be interesting to see how they respond. But we are on projections at the moment. And three more austerity budgets, if those projections carry on being met, and of course, that's partly under threat by what's going on with the euro at the moment. But if that happens, if we do meet those projections, then there is a chance that we can go back to the markets in around three years time. And at that point, the sovereignty question will be sort of dealt with, if you like, will have got out of the problem. So I think there's some optimism that Ireland will get there and will meet the targets and will finish the deal and be able to return to the markets. But there's a lot of nervousness as well. And that nervousness is probably right. You've mentioned that it's the exporting sector that's really driving Ireland forward. Is there a great deal of fear that as the rest of the Eurozone and potentially the UK goes into a double dip, that that source of um, hope will uh, dissipate? Yes, there is. I mean, you can imagine job announcements, both positive and negative, feature very highly on the news over here. Some of those have come from the multinational sector. And if demand drops significantly in Europe, then it's just a straightforward equation that says that large multinationals who are partly here because it's the entry to the European market may well cut back jobs. And we've seen examples of that already. Um, Dell was a particularly big announcement quite early in the crisis that caused ripples of alarm in Limerick over in the West, where jobs are in shorter supply generally anyway. So, so, yeah, absolutely, there's nervousness about that. And that's one of the things that could certainly derail the recovery plan, which, as I said, at the moment seems to be pretty much on track. Peter Lundo. Well, that's all for this week. My thanks to Katie Allen, to Giles Tremlett and to Dan Milmo. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Tom Clark, and thanks very much for listening. Nova is America's most watched science series. You'll find it every night at 7.50 on PBS. Sky Channel 166. Virgin Media 243, PBS, where television matters. 
For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.